Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today we're looking at two subjects whose pairing might seem incongruous, if not antithetical, intimacy and economics. What happens if we bring those two topics together? What does it mean to write intimate histories of economic life? My guests are a group of scholars drawn together by precisely those questions. They're a small segment of a larger cohort who began meeting virtually in May, 2021, each bringing their own research topic and working together to explore the virtues and limits of making the economy intimate. For some, intimacy itself was their subject matter, the emotional dimensions of economic transactions. For others, intimacy was a kind of methodology, denoting a small-scale, close-up, grassroots approach to a subject. Their aim as a group was to ask what a focus on intimate histories could offer to historical writing and historical perception, how it might transform the way historians traditionally write and see. To start off the discussion, I turn to the group's convener, Alexia Yates. She's a senior lecturer in modern history at the University of Manchester, where she co-directs the Center for Economic Cultures and researches and teaches the history of economic life and urban history. I invited her to talk about what first led her to reach out to a globally dispersed collection of scholars and set this conversation in motion. I convened the group for a number of reasons, and we've been meeting now for two and a half years, I would say, developing work together. For me, the pairing of economic life and intimacy or intimate histories is intended as an intervention in the economic humanities. It's exciting to me personally, and I think that the group has, has as we've developed it, has uh, you know added a lot to this because it suggests or it invites, I think, a, a distinct way of reading and of interpreting the economic. And I think it invites application and invites exploration across disciplines, across geographies, and across time periods. Um, so the group that we brought together, for instance, includes people from business schools and includes people from you know mo- the traditional history departments and includes people from literary studies. And really important as well, I think it bridges sort of the early modern into the modern. And this is a kind of space which I think in the humanities doesn't really exist um, as much as it should, you know, even with the sort of popularity of things like the new history of capitalism. And I think I began I began seeing books that were appearing um, with titles that flagged this notion of intimate history. I think it's been happening for about 10 years now, um, but increasingly I was beginning to see it happen in spheres that were also specifically related to economic relationships. I think of books like Emma Griffin's um, Intimate History of the Victorian Economy or Nan Enstead's Intimate History of Corporate Imperialism um, and her work on cigarettes. And I think these these signal a rethinking, in in my view, the signal to rethinking of, of the methodology, of the sources, of the narration, you know, the ways that we write when it comes to talking about economic matters like inequality or, you know, corporations, for instance, right? These really traditional economic categories, um, which were being thought about, discussed in a new way. 
I think that the impulses came from a lot of places. I think I've already hinted at some disciplinary impulses, sort of like gaps, the types of stories that I didn't see uh, or couldn't find easily being told in terms of economic history. But I think that there are also kind of conjunctural impulses and uh, political impulses to thinking about the economy in these ways, right? And so and thinking political impulses, I think a lot of this, the, a push insofar as there is a sort of resurgence of an interest in intimate histories. It's not necessarily coming from economic history or things primarily related to the to the economy. It's coming, for instance, a suite of intimate histories is coming from critical Black feminist scholarship about thinking very explicitly and very politically about ways of restoring, reconstructing, refiguring histories and, and accounts for, for the purposes of present-day social justice. I think there's a... This, or I would also say a sort of a political economy push insofar as thinking about the economics in the vein of humanities rather than in the vein of the social sciences is a act of resistance against the scientization of the university. And there's a much more acute uh, sort of conjunctural reason for sort of the why now question, which it was likely responsible for why after thinking about these issues for a few years, you know, sort of I took the plunge and tried to reach out to people who I thought would have something interesting to say around these questions, which no doubt will go on to develop in a few moments. And that was the, the COVID pandemic, which uh, to my mind, uh, you know, at least in its initial phases, of course, we're still very much in it, brought this conversation about the, the human side and the material side of the economy very much out into the open, often into competition. And of course, alerted people in a way to the longstanding crisis of the care economy. So I think that the ways that we think about the types of stories we want to tell about, about what counts as an economic action, what sorts of relationships motivate those actions, are engaged as people negotiate the economic, really kind of came to, uh, as I said, this conjunctural four in the past few years. Uh, so that's a lot about where I think this sort of small intervention or what seems to be a small intervention can go. But as I said, I think there are these conjunctural reasons, these disciplinary impulses, as well as potentially, we'll discuss later, some political background to why trying to find a different methodology and a different set of stories about the economy is important at this political moment. Great, thank you. I thought we could start from there with everybody going around and introducing themselves, say a little bit about your work and why you're here, why you came to be a part of this conversation, um, maybe what's been most valuable or particularly provocative for you and your work about being a part of it. I'm Julie Hardwick, I'm from the University of Texas at Austin, and I work primarily in French history, but also globally modern in the 17th and 18th centuries, primarily now. and. I've worked on a series of, for me, always inter interconnected questions about gender and family and law and the state and the economy in a shifting series of configurations on projects over the years. Um, someone just introduced me last week as a specialist in dysfunctional families as being the source of all, um, all historical questions. I want to thank Alexia for her inspiration, both in terms of her own marvelous work and, and for convening this group. I think um, you probably asked me because I had just published a book with intimacy in the title, Sex in an Old Regime City, Intimacy and Young Workers in France. And I looked in that book at what I would consider classic forms of intimacy, if you like, in terms of the 
physical and emotional and social experience of young couples in working neighborhoods in these cities in terms of their own relationships and in terms of all kinds of big questions about reform Catholicism, the role of the state in disciplining uh, women's sexuality and so on. But over time, I also realized that a very critical intimate matter in those communities was paid care work. And so I also ended up with a chapter about intimate labor as being an essential part of the economy of those communities, an essential resource for community members, but often very invisible for us as historians, that kind of care work is um like she was saying about COVID, but especially in the past, very difficult for us to identify and recognize that. So in my current work with this group on economic lives and intimacy, I suppose I'm thinking of intimacy in terms of issues like space, materiality, collaboration, experimentation, coerciveness, as well as uh, warmth, let's say, other kinds of closeness. And I was already working on a project about the transition to capitalism in early modern France that I had organized around a series of chapters when new practices emerged. And that's in new practices where there was new state regulation and also ordinary people began experimenting with managing their financial and economic lives in new ways, mostly small business owners, as we'd say today. So, for instance, there was uh, new consular jurisdictions were introduced with the idea that commercial affairs would be handled more quickly there. But that also required ordinary people to decide to use those courts as a way forward. And I have other chapters about private lotteries and about account books. Maybe I can just say an example of how thinking about intimacy changed how I'm working on, on those kinds of things. I had a draft about of a chapter about women keeping account books because wives were very often the people keeping accounts in these small businesses. And when you look at their account books, on the one hand, in 1673, account books gained a new legal status in the new commercial code in France because keeping account books appropriately became a kind of de facto norm because if you didn't have account books to show that were kept in an orderly manner, that became proof of intent, intent to defraud your creditors or to commit fraud with your creditors. So it opened people up for an investigation of bankruptcy. That's what I mean by a new legal status. But ordinary people were already experimenting and women as well as men with keeping account books in different ways. And so the idea of managing small business affairs, you can see that they bought paper, they drew blank lines on it. So they had an idea of what an account book should look like. Sometimes they started to write in there and they they never did anything that approximated double entry, but they did, you know, you can see them experimenting with different forms of keeping records. Sometimes they bought those books and gave a title on the front page and never put entries in. That is, they just stuck with the piles of random receipts, you know, that they had before. That's what I mean about ordinary people experimenting. But when I started to think about these intimacy questions with Alexia, I noticed that what was going on here was also about kind of small histories, let's say, of the transition to capitalism, where many actors were actually working in shared domestic and commercial spaces, uh, where the record keeping was collaborative. That is what we see in the archives today is the consequence of conversation, negotiation, many scraps of paper, scraps of paper that might be in a kind of day book or it might be on the back of a playing card or uh, other kinds of receipts. 
So this collaborativeness in record keeping that's very hard for us to identify, the experimenting with new forms, and in which gender and family were critical components in what was going on there. And you know, we can see all kinds of things there about the participation of ordinary men and women, even to practices from which they might seem remote, like racial capitalism, by looking carefully at these collaborations and different layers and what they're noting and who, who they're working with. So, so that seems to me really essential to better understand how these new practices emerged on the ground out of this endless experiments. And lotteries, private lotteries began in France in the early 1660s. They were imported from Italy. They were a legal instrument to deal with the problem of illiquidity in the economy. So very closely tied to the lack of credit or arrears paralyzing the commercial economy. And what can we do about that? We can have private lotteries. They were very highly regulated by the state, which is great for historians because they generated lots of records. And when I first started looking at them, Mostly I was just amused because they have the lottery tickets were sold and the, so that the, they have um, a copy of the ticket that was sold, as, you know, as well as the as well as the winning tickets, if you like, the tickets that people turned in when they won something. And um, I noticed women were a lot of the buyers, lots of the buyers. And I was sometimes they would write these phrases on the back. If I win a bed, all I'll need is a husband, you know, and other kinds of what you could sort of get the sense of ordinary people's participation. And I could see that this legal instrument for dealing with illiquidity was also about people amusing themselves, gambling. It was about aspiration and hope. But women did need dowries and household startup uh, kit to get married. So from their side, there were also this practical matter. And people who won items could sell the items that they won. But also, it only worked to help with illiquidity if ordinary women and men were buying, buying these tickets and helping that process move along. So I would say that this is a long answer. Intimacy in a variety of forms, thinking about it with this group, with a prompt from um, Alexia, has helped me mm, consolidate a nuance, let's say, an argument about how these practices like lotteries or account books were essential parts of a kind of ordinary, mundane practice to the transition of capitalism. And it helps us understand how that was successful at a very basic level on the ground in like how lotteries could be an illiquidity tool in much more complex and grounded ways. So I'd say in those regards, for me, that thinking about intimacy and looking at small histories of capitalism does provide us with a different narrative, not necessarily a replacement narrative, but a way of thinking that, you know, many of these narratives were part, in fact, of what we think of in terms of these kinds of economic changes. Thank you. I'm just going to go around on my screen as people turn up. So I think Andrew might be next. So I'm Andrew Pop, and um, I work in the Department of Management, Politics and Philosophy at Copenhagen Business School here in Denmark. And uh, as an aside of uh, Alexia's introduction, it might be worth noting that my department very shortly will be renamed as the Department of Business Humanities. So um, we're talking about congruences uh, going on. So maybe this is part of the same shift to reacquaint economics and business and the humanities. So, but I, despite working in a business school all of my career, all of my post-PhD career, I am a historian. I embarked on my postdoctoral uh, career as a, with a very firm identity as a business historian with all of that uh, that that meant at the time I studied firms and I studied firms using 
framings and their theories derived from economics and to a lesser extent from business and management studies, uh, interest in strategy and business decision making and ramifications for performance of firms and performance of economies. But I wound myself, wound my way very slowly through a series of gradually evolving topics and approaches that gradually began to dissolve the kind of edges uh, of the business firm as as my principal focus of interest. But I didn't really notice that that was happening for a very long time. And then 10 years ago now, unbelievably, I published a book on a firm, nominally, uh, but there was as much an emotional history of the uh, marriage of the two principles of this family business, English family business, early 19th century in origins, beginning in in the second decade of the 19th century. And at the time, I'd not heard really in any meaningful way about the history of emotions. And I think if I look back at that book now, I I talk about epistolary history because my sources were letters, but I don't ever directly mention the history of emotions. And it was only subsequently that I began to realised that I needed to read far beyond the supposed discipline where my home was, which was becoming pretty nominal by that point. And I began to read and then eventually to write in ways that tried to bring business, which has rooted a supposedly at least in rationality and, and the logics of economics, the logics of competition and markets, um, decision-making and strategy, and began to, to to try and find ways to bring that into dialogue with the, the history of emotions, which is, you know, in theory, an incompatible world of kind of messiness and irrationality. Uh, that's not something I believe, by the way. And, and then increasingly following on from that, also began to try and bring business history into dialogue with the history of the everyday. So, uh, which, which shifted my focus yet again because uh, because there the, the the business firm became even more decentered once we looked I began to look at the impact of businesses on the shape and experience of people's everyday lives and and this this is the work that I think must have prompted Alexia to ask me to join the group and we we overlap in the world of business history and a, an organisation called the Business History Conference in particular. Uh, and then I, I really have to thank Alexia a lot at this point because because when she first asked me to to join the group and start participating, I, I confess I'd not really heard of the idea of histories of economic life. For some time, I'd thought that I was no longer really a business historian. And as soon as I... Alexia introduced me to the idea of histories of economic life. It made perfect sense to me in terms of what I was now interested in, which was the shape and experience of people's ordinary economic lives. And then adding intimate histories on top of that uh, really bound together the interest I've been trying to shape over the preceding few years in terms of both the history of emotions and histories of every light day life as they intersected with business. So being involved in the group has helped me much, much better better understand what I've been trying to do for probably almost a decade or or, or, or longer in, in ways which were not in focus before. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. Sarah, you're next on my screen. Hi, I'm Sarah Roddy and I'm based at Maynooth University, which is 
for those of you who don't know, is just outside Dublin in Ireland. And I'm a historian primarily of Ireland in the middle of the century with some diversions along the way, occasionally to British history. My first book was about emigration. A second book I co-wrote was in about sort of British charity fundraising history. I hesitate to say I'm here because Alexia brought us all together and I used to be down the corridor from her in, in the University of Manchester. I think uh, the the book that I'm currently writing now is, is probably what has led to me being here. And it's been a very useful, uh, uh, echoing what Andrew says, it's been very useful in kind of clarifying my thoughts on, on what it is I'm doing here. In, in a way, I suppose I was familiar with histories of economic life, but the the kind of intimate lens has been a, a very useful a useful introduction to, to to what I'm doing now that I'm at the, the writing up stage of this project. So it's a project that's been going on for a long time. It's about money and Irish Catholicism in the late 19th and early 20th century. And uh, it started from the, the premise of being interested in, you know, it's a voluntary system where virtually, you know, every ordinary lay Catholic in Ireland in that period gives money in some form to the Catholic Church. And one of the things I was very conscious of in in starting the project at, uh, uh, you know, at the early research stages was very much resisting the idea of an institutional history, which is what it could so easily have become because the starting point, I suppose, was the, the recognition that there was voluminous kind of archival records and that, that were in various places around Ireland and various parts of the, the Catholic Church and that nobody was really using them and exploiting them and that there was enormous potential there because as I say virtually every lay Catholic virtually every ordinary person in Ireland in that period gave money in some form in some amount from very small to very large in some manner to the church and so I suppose what I was what, what attracted me to it as somebody who comes I suppose if I was forced to describe myself I describe myself as a social historian who's often been interested in economic life um kind of resist the economic historian label in some respects. Maybe I shouldn't. But what attracted me to the project was the idea that in these records, these these archives uh, around the country and around the world, in fact, as well, in, in relation to the Irish Catholic Church, there was so much potential to find out more about these ordinary people, problematic as that term might be. That's what was my primary interest. There's a huge opportunity there. And they're people who have often been absent, maybe, from certainly the kind of Irish history, from Irish economic history. And they're there in some form, often just a name and an amount. And, you know, you can, you can build on that in some respects. But that's where I was coming from with the project. And that was that was what was always in my mind as I was researching it over the years. And then kind of coming into conversation with this group and, and thinking about intimacy, I sort of realised that, well, very early on in the project, I abandoned any notion about um, quantification because the records are so imperfect and there are so many gaps. And I'm not I'm not econometrically inclined, is how I would put it. I, I realise this was to, to borrow the phrase that, that that Judy was using, that small histories is 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 what was kind of really driving me, what was what was interesting me in, in 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 all of this. And there are so many small histories, kind of intimate moments, intimate practices that are recorded there 
in in ways that we might not think of as conventionally intimate. They're not. I don't have the kind of reflective sources very often that 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 Andrew has spoken about in terms of correspondence and 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 you know things like diaries and memoirs from from these ordinary people. I have them from the other side, from the point of view of the fundraisers, from the the, the clergy and other religious. But I don't I don't have it from the the the, the side of the the ordinary kind of unheralded. Kind of marginalized people I'm, I'm I'm most interested in, but intimacy kind of presented me with I think a, a, a way of seeing a lens, a way of framing things, and, and and kind of maybe getting at that a little bit. So that's why I'm here, I think, and you know, we can get into kind of some of the the methodological problems that 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 kind of ambition throws up, I suppose. Wonderful, thank you, Orsi. I think you're next. Thank you. My name is Orsi Hus, and uh, I work at Uppsala University and actually I was an economic historian until recently, but I changed department. So I became a kind of cultural historian working now at the Department of uh, History of Science and Ideas, which is a very broadly defined topic in Sweden. And I think that it's not very typical that we have departments of economic history at uh, other universities, but in Sweden that has a long tradition. And uh, my interest for this topic, intimacy and economic life, actually started already when I was a historian at Stockholm University and working on consumer culture and also on lotteries. And after a point, I found that what I am writing about, it is how consumer dreaming was handled in the early 20th century. And it was through studies of uh, departments, the oral culture and window dressing, but also about lottery and playing uh, the lotteries and and uh, uh, dreaming about money. Also, I, I can agree with Julie that lotteries are very interesting because they're interesting artifacts. Tickets could be shared by, uh, within a family, within a group of friends. And uh, I found a lot of women selling the tickets also, but also playing. So it was a way for me into this field. But I was not really reflecting about I am I'm writing about economic life. I was writing about everyday life and uh, everyday ideas about different kind of values. And sometimes these values were defined as economic and sometimes it was defined in moral or ideal or uh, emotional kind of values. And I was very interested in how these different kind of values were balanced against each other in historical praxis. Then I started a job at the Economic History Department in Uppsala University, and I found a lot of knowledge about uh, the financial world, about banking, about economy at large. And I learned a lot, but I realized that I was not interested in really the same thing that my colleagues were. I was not interested in like economy as such, but as exactly as you use the word economic life. And it took for me a few years to realize that it is the key word for me, that is the economic life as people make sense of the, the activities that we usually call economic. So that's why I was very glad that Alexia asked me to join this group. But I think it also, intimacy is very important for me because I think that it is it was a good concept to connect different aspects that we recognize in uh, history. That Andrew mentioned emotional history. There's also gender history. There is also kind of a history of the family. But intimacy is a good concept because it could 
mean all of that. And also for me, it is important because it is a word for both practices and ideas and uh, uh, so the, and also devices in a way. And uh, what I realized that also a word which became very important for me, it is knowledge, fits into the concept of intimacy. Actually, the fact that you have intimate knowledge about something, somebody, somebody else, a kind of knowledge that maybe is not available for a third party. It is a kind of intimacy, but in economic life, this kind it is very it could be very problematic and very important. So I think for me, the advantage of this concept of intimacy that also could be used for knowledge. What I do in my research today could be categorized as a kind of studies of the financialization of everyday life, but I am more interested in the opposite. In fact, how finance became domesticated, how banking finance became tamed to fit into people's lives. And when I participated at our workshop, I realized, listening to Julie and others, that back in the time, it was absolutely not strange that uh, economy was part of everyday life. And somehow with modernity, it maybe was separated as it is very common to actually perceive the modernity, capitalism and Adam Smith and sort of the idea that that the rational self-interest would be ideally opposed to emotions, love, uh, family, other moral values. But in fact, I think that what happens in the 20th century, that it is within the financial world, with the formalized world of finance, there are many attempts to kind of re-intimize finance, to give it an image of intimacy, and that uh, it could be just a PR thing. It could be more like a general ideological ambition to connect finance to everyday life and emotions. And I am very interested in how I am studying Swedish banks, and I'm interested how this process of intimization of finance occurred. Just to take an example, like it could be campaigns targeting housewives uh, in the 60s, already before today's idea of financialization of daily life. These campaigns embedded finance and actually enacted finance as an emotional process. So I, I, I've studied uh, banking material very different ways compared to my colleagues at the economic history department. But also I was talking about how intimacy was a, a keyword for me and also economic life. But I will just say a few words about the word in between them and because it connects to my theoretical interest. And uh, actually, when I started it within the social sciences at the economic history department, I uh, started to read a lot of economic sociology. And uh, then I, this, I realized that this end is very important because it does not say what the relation between intimacy and economic life is. So it allows for also different perspectives. It could be embeddedness for some sociologists, but it opens also for culturalist approaches. And maybe it is not really the kind of economistic approaches that says that uh, intimacy is always also economic. But I think that it, it opens up the relation between intimacy and the economy and economic life. And it, in a way, I feel that it 
connects to my interest in economic sociological approaches to this topic. Maybe we should talk a little bit more about this because uh, intimacy is a kind of keyword in some sociological approaches to today capitalism, today's capitalism, but it has not been as important in uh, economic historical uh, studies. So I think it's very important if we can add a historical perspective to today's discussions about intimacy and economic life within political economy and within uh, economic sociology. That's great. Thank you, um, Kate. Um, so I'm Kate Gibson and I'm a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the University of Manchester. Um, so my first research project my first book was about illegitimate children and their experience of family life and their experience of stigma and I would in the 18th century in 18th century Britain and I would always call myself a social historian um but the more I looked into it the more I realized that this really was an intimate economy because what I was researching was full of stories of who cares for children and where do the children live and who pays for it and it I realized that there was a whole shadow economy going on where men usually were funneling money into caring for illegitimate children away from legitimate family and legitimate inheritance practices and um, property inheritance and in that economy discretion had a market value and care had a market value and I think I had always seen that as a social thing. I was a social historian. And I think this network has really made me realise that I was looking at intimate economies, but I didn't realise that I was until I kind of became more familiar with the wider historiography. And I think it's something that lots of us have kind of touched on in that we have all moved slightly not quite interdisciplinary, but we've all moved a little bit and, and some people have been economic historians and they've become more social and, and that kind of thing. And I, I do think this concept of an intimate economy is a really good way of collapsing any perceived boundaries between social history and economic history or history and economics. And I think certainly there's a reputation, perhaps that economic history is heavily quantitative and very hard <laughs> for social historians who or social and cultural historians who are used to looking at qualitative stuff but the more I think about it the more I realize actually my research was probably about this all along and that's really come out in my current research um which is a history of fostering and adoption in 18th century Britain so I'm, I'm really a historian of the very long 18th century um Britain and the British Empire so the movement of children as well as 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 them growing up in Britain and really my work is taps into a kind of recent move to really look into the value of care work and the value of women's work especially and you know this has a really long history there's there's lots of stuff you know early feminist historians you know early 20th century stuff especially about women's work and domestic labor and how do we count it and how do we value it but it's really had a resurgence I would say in the last five years or so and there's there's new projects by people like Alex Shepard and Jane Whittle about trying to count women's labour in, in a better way, a more robust way, so that it can be integrated into these big quantitative, you know, state of the field economic histories. And so I kind of see my work slightly as a contribution to this in terms of looking at who cares for children, 
what household does that child reside in? Who benefits from a child's labour? How much does that child cost? And who is picking up the bill? As well as looking at fostering adoption in terms of, you know, more traditional social history, the emotional relationship between a foster child and a foster parent, the way they feel about their identity, any stigma towards them, their life course. So really, I'm trying to integrate this economic history into into this kind of bigger social history of fostering and the concept of an intimate economy is very very useful for that and I think what is really helpful about networks like this is that they bring you out of your historiographical silo and they really expose you to lots and lots of different work from different chronologies different geographies you know so for example I have looked a lot about kind of care labour, but also sexual labour. When I was looking at illegitimacy, extramarital relationships as not only a way of of finding sexual pleasure, but also as a way of getting domestic labour for free without marrying somebody. And that, you know, there's a huge historiography of that in terms of enslaved women's experience, which I, especially coming out of North American scholarship, that I probably would have found eventually, but being part of networks like these, you know, really exposes you to it much quicker. And it's therefore just a kind of um, more fruitful intellectual kind of response, helps you think about it differently. Fantastic. That was so interesting. Thank you to everybody for going around like that I've got a billion questions for each of you and and kind of trying to cobble them all together into into one I mean one of the things that really struck me in what you said and Kate just just addressed it directly is the the way that each of you in different ways is describing movement movement out of a out of one place in a in a conventionally defined discipline towards something else that straddles boundaries and and I wondered if 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 a couple of you wanted to address that specifically just in terms of what sorts of problems does the concept of intimacy solve um, maybe in in conventional economic history how does it I don't know we can rearrange trouble conventional categories of economic thinking even even the shift from economics to economic life takes that first step, but then to bring the intimate into it. What does that allow you to address that keeping two steps back maybe doesn't? Yeah, Julie. That's a great question. And actually, I just want to follow up in in light of that question on what Kate and Sarah were saying a bit about this, because firstly, I want to say we do have people in this group who are working on race and ethnicity as important parts of intimate lives here, and they're just not here with us today. I think one of the ways in which intimacy works here is, is as I think you said, Sarah, like you see these moments um, in a different way, or that is you recognize them, you know, and then you think about what the meaning of that is. Or as you were saying, Kate, with um, the way we've been able to rethink what was going on with enslaved women and the kinds of many kinds of labor that they were coerced into doing. Or in this question that I've also had about children born out of wedlock where the kind of intimate labor that I was looking at were landladies who specialized. They made their living in renting rooms short term to women who were 
pregnant but not married and their boyfriends usually rented these rooms for them and they also provided pre and postnatal care you know not just the space but um but but actual care they got a midwife and i i loved how you said there Kate that discretion had a market value and you know that's a thing that's very hard for us to see you know and when you see that you're thinking about all of those kinds of essential services you know labor that's providing essential services in um, a variety of ways. And you said it's a shadow economy. I'm not sure it's it's a, it, it's in the shadows because I think people at the time knew it very well. It's in the shadows for us, but it is often unregulated. And um, I think that's an, another kind of movement that we often see there that looking for economic lives and intimacy leads us into unregulated parts of the economy where there are just fewer records for us usually, you know, you know what I mean? So you're, you're not looking so obviously. So I think those different kinds of both these conversations, as you were saying, Kate, you know, with people working at different time periods in different areas and different groups, but also the way that intimacy, thinking about intimacy itself encourages us to sort of reposition and reframe what's going on. I definitely, yes. Um, I think that what Judy's kind of highlighting there is like, this idea of making different types of economies visible in a way that they perhaps were not in traditional economic histories, whether that's because they're not regulated and the records aren't there, but also in the types of labour that we try to measure and the types of economic value that we try to measure. And one thing that I'm really thinking about in my work is how I understand non-monetary exchange. And I think a lot of, because because there's been a desire to think about um, you know, capitalist histories or quantitative histories and wages and, and inequality measured through money, perhaps a social historian going at it from a social historian point of view would be like, but what about gift exchange and exchanges of time and exchanges of labor? And when I look at fostering, I look at people exchanging childcare as a gift or as a kinship obligation. And that just doesn't show up if you look at financial sources. Some people obviously paid money for care, but a lot of people, it was a part payment alongside something else. And it wasn't seen as wages exactly. And so I think I think thinking about the economy as an intimate thing makes us just step back and think okay but who actually is is exchanging something here who is valuing something and how does that actually work in a way that's a lot broader and therefore just a more robust way of going about doing the history Sarah did you want to come in yeah um I think it's it's kind of a sort of methodological or source problem that intimacy is a as a kind of way of seeing solved for me as well because what I'm dealing with is as I say, it 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 could be uh, you know a kind of straight quantitative exercise in trying to count up you know all of these what must have been millions of transactions in the period I'm looking at from you know hundreds of thousands of people and many of those you know we could define in uh, as as intimate moments and, and and so on but they are they're hidden away in ledgers and and they're they're not sexy and they're um and 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 we might think that the only way to deal with them is 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 through quantification so the intimate then sort of makes all of that stuff navigable in a way and and partly it is about recognizing so I'm, i don't i don't have the same problem i suppose that 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 kate has that this is not some kind of 
uh, sort of shadow economy or un- unregulated. It's 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 you know regulated by canon law in the church in in, in a sense, even if it's parallel to sort of. The, the 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 wider economy but there's nothing there's nothing hidden about this but it's sort of hidden in its vastness if you know what i mean there's just so much there's just so much evidence there's so much seemingly quantitative evidence that i i could be dealing with in quantitative ways that it 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 it's you you need to sort of zone in onto in, into in, into smaller smaller moments and smaller individual transactions and and sort of flesh them out and that's the that's what where the, the looking at things through a, a, a kind of intimate lens I keep using the word in the phrase intimate lens but that's how I see it I suppose and um, that's that's the problem itself for me that it it, it allows me to to recognize I suppose that it's the the accumulation of all of these exchanges the accumulation of all of these these transactions i suppose where where you get the the sort of value in 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 understanding the people who who engage in the people the people who 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 handed over their their money and you know much like what judy was saying earlier this is very much a a moment of transition in the kind of wider economy that i'm looking at going from essentially a sort of subsistence economy for lots of people into a cash kind of capitalist economy in the in the later 19th century so it's 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 kind of understanding people's interactions with money at a very kind of pivotal wider moment but looking at it in in a kind of everyday sense and i think that's that's what intimacy really clarified for me this is what i was doing and 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 and, and giving it a name and, and giving it a um a sort of um uh, a, a label is what really helped uh, in in that respect. Marcy, did did you have a hand up? Yes, I don't know if it's really an answer to this question, but I think I'm kind of an empiricist after all. So what I find in my material that people actually talk about intimacy, they use the word, they use synonymous words, uh, and sometimes intimacy is a problem for a historian historical actors uh, I'm studying, sometimes it's a solution. So it's not only a solution for me as a historian, but it is interesting because it is a problem in the situation and institution and uh, for people, people I am studying, or sometimes it's actually a solution. So it could disturb market exchange, but it could also be, uh, it, it was a, a problem for the banks I was studying was that they uh, suddenly in the late 60s realized that they know so much about their customers they didn't really know what to do with this knowledge and they called it but we have a very intimate relationship and 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 then in a way that that was solved but it was kind of something that they were reflected upon and the, the opposite could be true also so that the intimacy was a solution for something so that's how i think it's relevant for me and andrew so in preparation, Alexia asked us to think about what intimacy uh, meant for us. And I I hadn't really done that properly until, until we were getting ready. And for better or worse, I landed on the word complicity as a way of thinking about um, uh, what intimacy meant for me. And I think that has probably three layers for me. It's the subject. It's when I looked at John Elizabeth Shaw, the couple I wrote a book about 10 years ago or Ray and and Florence who uh, I'm writing a paper about now in some ways 
I, I'm looking at the complicities that their intimate relationships generated, particularly around their kind of economic uh, projections and fantasies and dreams. And Orsi talked about dreams earlier. And I don't necessarily mean complicity in a pejorative sense. And I think it normally has a, uh, often has a negative connotation around in collaboration and such like. Um, but uh, so it's, it's partly partly subject. Uh, it's partly also framing in terms of connecting uh, people to bigger structures like capitalism, most obviously. Um, to which, to what extent can we think of uh, of individuals' relationships to capitalism, to business, as, as a series of complicities um, in in both directions? And as I say, taking judgment and and negative or pejorative connotations out of that. But then it also it it captures something of the methodological challenges for me because it it demands a degree of uh, kind of complicity from me in their lives, uh, complicity with the sources, uh, complicity with writing, complicity uh, perhaps also with with, with audience. So in in preparing and, and really giving this concrete thought for the first time, that was that was the best word uh, that I could come up with that captures something about what has shifted for me in trying to think about or refocus on the intimate. Gosh, I was going to, well, maybe I will pick up directly on, on Andrew's question about audience and about the intimate as a, as a method of research, as also a, it's a lens on a subject and potentially it creates different demands on you as a, as a writer as well. You know, as I was listening to, I was thinking about being a graduate student many, many, many decades ago and seeing these dusty, dull green volumes on the shelves and economic history of blah. And, you know, you knew not to pick those off the shelf unless there was a particular reason why you why you had to. But throw the word intimate in there and, you know, you might well pluck it off the shelf just out of curiosity. So knowing that that's the line that you're that you're treading with this. And, and I think it came up earlier when Andrew spoke about the, the way that saying intimate and economic in the same, it seems to bring together the, you know, in, in very stereotypical ways, the, the, the logical and the rational and the messy and the emotional. Does it demand different modes of research, of interacting with potentially, for those of you who are working with living subjects or the descendants of living subjects, does it demand different modes of, of writing, of different ways or different styles or different forms? Sarah? Those are great questions. Andrew's always so great about uh, thinking about these framings and these big issues. And on that question of what different demands it makes of us as writers, or does it? I'm just going to ask you, Lexi, you know, in the summer, you were saying, like, does it does it tend us too much towards anecdote? How, you know, how can we how can we keep structures up while writing, you know, these kind of intimate histories about ordinary people's experiences? And I would say, is it a problem that these are anecdotes? Because we're sort of connecting what are otherwise fragmentary experiences in people's lives. Sarah, did you have your hand up earlier? 
yeah, it it sort of veers us away from from Judy's very good question there. But I, I guess people can stew on that and come back to it. I, I suppose another thing that conversations with this group and and kind of beginning to write the book or writing using the concept of intimacy. One of the things I I realized that. In, intimacy can come into your practice as a historian as well. And, and I had been confronted with this a few times already. And it's the nature of the, the work that I'm, I'm doing, I suppose. Being an Irish person with a, you know, a long kind of family association with Ireland and Irish Catholicism and working on what I do almost and given what I've said about, you know, virtually every Irish Catholic in the late 19th century gave money to the Irish Catholic Church, it would almost have been, well, it was inevitable, I suppose, that I was going to confront some kind of ancestor lurking in the in the archival material that I was I was looking at, or 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 sort of more personal, intimate, I suppose, connections, if you if you want to say that, in terms of you know where I'm from and and and, and so on, and and doing that a few times. It kind of clarified some things in terms of if what I'm trying to do is put flesh on the bones of these people and see them not as in some ways economic history is is wont to see ordinary people as as kind of statistics, essentially, in terms of putting the flesh on the bone, knowing, OK, that's my I encountered my great grandfather's brother my great great uncle i suppose in in the archive giving money to the catholic church and and there's a sort of residual knowledge that comes with that and 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 it 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 kind of helps you to see that person as a rounded person and then it leads you to think well i you know i i can build on this in certain ways and there are things i know about this and things i know i can't know about and that sort of translates then into some of the other kind of exchanges economic exchanges that i'm talking about financial exchanges i'm talking about and and realizing the both the possibilities and the limitations, I suppose, of 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 using intimacy as a way of 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 getting at those. So there's a kind of nice, and I I'll, I'll be writing about it in the introduction to my book. There's a nice kind of crossover or overlap between that kind of intimate, the intimacy of the historian with the sources, looking for intimacy in in the sources as well. So um, that doesn't answer Julie's question. But we'll all have to remember that one. <laughs> Or see you had your hand up. Yeah, very interesting question. Did I think it? Oh, sometimes yes, it is the anecdotal kind of writing, and I don't think this is a problem. But it could be even compared to other types of history writing. Uh, also, it is difficult to find all these very personal sources. But I wanted to mention here: this is in a way, I always felt thinking like. I'm doing an ethnography, but back in historical time. And then it could be very interesting to focus on a small, very concrete, banal things. I have been writing, a, I have a paper about the banking conferences for women housewives. I mentioned that in the 1960s in Sweden, it was sometimes very large events from 200 to 2,000 people. And the, the sources I found, it was Partly, it's a great thing. One of the speakers kept a diary. So she described how she have seen the audience and how the audience were dressed, behaving, interesting, how old they were. So it was a very personal history. But also, there are a lot of things about how the bank organized these events for women. 
and how they had to relabel the toilets that they then used to to uh, and uh, to decorate with women with um, uh, flowers. How to, they had to relabel toilets and decorate with flowers and which kind of music they played. And I think that all these instructions for the the staff who organized these conferences helped me to see how the venue looked like, how they were thinking about, and combined with this diary of one of the speakers. Although I cannot hear or interview the participating women, it gave me a very good picture of the the ambience and feeling at, at these events. So yes, it could be a kind of anecdotic, but I sort of like to think about this, uh, doing ethnography in the archives and focusing on very concrete, small stuff uh, and artifacts too. Kate. So I'll kind of attempt to answer Mary Beth's question and Julie's question together, because I think you can like merge them. And I, I suppose ugh, the concept to me makes you see things in a very micro way. And that's really great because you get a lot of detail and it really helps you to reconstruct lives that perhaps the evidence is very fragmentary. And that's great, but it can be very unwieldy and you can be drowning in material. And to a certain extent, the concept of an economy makes you, it encourages you to think of economic decisions at a very personal level and therefore at a very idiosyncratic level. And therefore it can be very hard to find pattern. And it's, you can find it, <laughs> um, but I think I think it, it is a methodological challenge for how you write it um, and how you prevent it from being just too unwieldy and too much detail. But Mary Beth, when you talked about those kind of traditional kind of big quantitative, um, you know, tomes, I think it's really nice to have them as a counterpart. So like I can say, oh, I have this servant in 18th century Britain and she made these decisions um, about the care of her child that seemed very personal to her personal circumstances and the relationship with her wider family and her income and her geographical location and all this kind of stuff. But what she did actually made perfect sense based on if you looked at these big histories of husbandry servants and their wages and where they moved to and you know those big quantitative stuff and you know I'm it's not really a surprise like this is good history but it seems to me that that's a way of kind of uniting the two and that we need both because we provide flesh for these quantitative bones by doing intimate economic histories but we also need those bones in order to make wider sense of it and to bring out those patterns that you really do need. But it is a challenge to write, actually write that. Yeah. That's great. And Andrew. Thanks. These have been questions that have been on my mind for a long time because um, I, I knew that I was, as I was working on John and Elizabeth, uh, sure, partly for per- reasons in my own personal life that I, I developed a great attachment to them, and um, I've worked on them for a long time, and I continue to continue to write about them. I must have been writing them about them for about fifteen years and longer, probably close to twenty years now. And uh, and of course, that worried me, but it, unbeknownst to me, uh, and in fact, vice versa. At the same time, I was I was writing my book on them. The the wonderful historian Joan Bediato was 
researching them too for her work on the history of parenthood and then and then she wrote a blog about it and she found my work and subsequently I found hers and she said well we both fell in love with these people and she said it directly then you know there was <laughs> there was a strong kind of emotional bond uh with them but that that d- despite our very different uh, interests in them that, that they were demonstrably the same people on the pages of our, our two very different histories, despite the fact that we had developed these highly subjective relationships with them, you know, that we're told that we're not meant not meant to do, uh, that, that we'd allowed the distance between us, ourselves and the and the subjects to collapse significantly. And that and and and, and we had allowed that because of the intimacy of the the and richness of the sources, which I guess had, going back to the word I used before, had kind of provoked a, a complicity in us as authors. And then I've had the same experience working recently with the this set of two hundred letters between a young couple from Ohio, Ray and Florence, and written in nineteen seventeen eighteen, uh, but with a different dimension to it this time because everyone I've written about in the past has been very long dead. But I got Ray and Florence's letters from their granddaughter, Karen, who knew them very well and was living with them as a teenager when they died within a couple of months of each other in 1978 and loved them, obviously, and I had very fond memories of them. And when I found some difficult material, particularly in Florence's letters uh, around race, (laughs) material that I admit I handled really clumsily when in the first draft I presented back in back in May, there was a very challenging process to work through that material, my relationship to it, and and Karen's relationship not only to the material but much much more vividly to her memory of, of people who weren't just some. A young couple who wrote some letters nearly a hundred years or more than a hundred years ago, but but were were loved grandparents. So that has the intimacy there pr- provokes real challenges. But I think I, I think if we're going to write histories that we claim are intimate, then it's important that we meet a, and acknowledge those challenges rather than and we can kind of sustain some distance yeah great um i was i was actually going to dovetail right off of those words about challenges and opportunities because it's come up in in a number of people's remarks and i'm also conscious of of time and i don't want to bring the discussion prematurely to a close at all but i thought that uh, i could maybe slightly clumsily combine a question about well it's really is a it really is a single question about about where this approach or emergent approach can go should go what challenges and opportunities it it holds as a as a lens as a subject a kind of hybrid subject area and methodology and also i'm going to piggyback on the question that julie raised in the chat about the gendered nature of the either the well maybe both the content the direction the focus of the field and and its practitioners which um 
Andrews said in the chat that uh, I'm very aware that for the first time in my career, I'm the only male in an otherwise all female space. And I don't know how typical that is, but um, but I think this question of whether a focus on intimate economic life is inherently gendered in in some ways is is worth raising as well in terms of thinking about where this approach might be able to take people. So anybody just raise your hand. Yeah, Kate. Well, to talk about the kind of the gendered aspect and the kind of the political trajectory perhaps of intimate economic research, I think I think perhaps the way I understand it as the way it grew as a concept, and I'm sure there's lots of opinions about this, so feel free other people to interject, but as almost like a feminist project to uh, make women's labor more visible. And the word intimate has connotations with family and sexual labor and the household and care and children, which I don't think it is narrowly defined to, but a lot of it is about that. And so I think perhaps it has attracted feminist scholars and also women who see that imbalance in their current lives um, and in the current way, you know, we're historians, but in the current way that economic productivity is valued in most societies in the world. Um, and domestic labour and care work does tend to be chronically undervalued. Um, and in the UK, for, for example, at the moment, there's a massive crisis of childcare provision and the cost of childcare is insane. So I think it is encouraging people who, are, who want to look back at the origins of that. And I think it's also, it can be seen politically as a way of combating the idea that kind of domestic and care work is like a naturalized female thing to do and therefore doesn't have value because it's just a social, an altruistic social thing that you do. And I think seeing those types of labor as labor and as labor that has a value and it should be part of economic history is a way of combating that. This is, uh, well, we'll see if at the end of this comment, if I get around to speaking about the, the gendered nature of it. Um, but I wanted to speak a little bit about where, you know, if, if this is a unified approach, where it might go and and, and whether it should. Um, you know, I, I think it's tremendously kind of intellectually and, uh, you know, in its most ambitious forms, politically important. Uh, and so I think that it is very important that it stay around. And I want to sort of come back to something that, Kate began getting into this question of sort of the relationship between these stories, the way we write them, things that might appear kind of anecdotal or trivial, and then the work of sort of elevating those into the spheres that is conventionally occupied by other kinds of, of you know, sort of large scale social scientific economic inquiry. I think that's a real, it's a real challenge. And part of what I, what I, what I don't want the stories that could come out of this account to be seen at from, I could see this from a critical vantage, right, from sort of, or an antagonistic vantage, we might say, right, is in a way that I think sort of an ungenerous reading of what Kate said would see that as sort of, you know, like, well, so now you're adding some local color, you know, you're adding some, some quaint stories to tell it, to, to, but to confirm vaguely, you know, sort of the, the big trends that we already knew. But in fact, I think one of the reasons that the history of economic life, but then inflected by this intimate lens, and I'll, I'll, I'll say why I think that's important in a second, is so important, um, is that, you know, where the economy happens, where these relationships with their emancipatory and incredibly coercive uh, possibilities takes place, 
are in these social relations, right? This is where it is. We don't understand what's going on in the economy. We don't understand what's going on with something we might call capitalism. We don't understand what's going on in the market if we don't understand these terrains. And if we don't kind of expand our understanding of who gets to speak from those terrains, we'll just be leaving a, you know, a tremendous amount out. So there's a way that of course we're going to, because as Kate rightly said, these are good good alternative history or historical approaches are out there. Um, and there is a lot of you know work that will be confirmed with these sorts of approaches. But at the same time, I think there's a there is a an intellectual and a political urgency around saying that, um, or sorry, maybe not saying about moving these sorts of stories to come back to this notion that people are moving around, right? Into the center of what we think of when we think of trying to grasp the complexity the complicity that we're all engaged in, you know, with economic systems. I think that has to happen at these levels. And when I say to the, to say that I think the history of economic life can do that you know, sort of by itself, right? What the history of economic life is trying to do is put human experience at the core of, of investigating economic facts. I think adding this notion of intimacy, I think, um, given the way that intimacy and intimate histories are being developed in spheres, again, as I said, from outside economic history, narrowly understood, is really about an attunement to your positionality and that constant negotiation that you will be embarking upon as you study how your historical historical subjects are constantly negotiating, you know, sort of the intimate and the economic. And, you know, it's it's about making that explicit and about making us manage and, and negotiate those those constraints and those responsibilities. Um, you know, let's not pretend that what we choose to study is not deeply political. Um, so perhaps this is a way of coming back to to the notion of sort of the gendered aspect of what's going on in this particular in this particular group. I didn't set out to make a group that looks like this, <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of the invitations that I sent out, these were the the people that I um, wanted to hear from, in terms of as it explicitly grappling with the problem and the potential of finding different ways of writing a human account of economic change. So I, I agree with Kate's comments about some of the sort of local, uh, well, our, our contemporary circumstances feeding into this. Yeah, I, I suppose I'll just, I'll have to trail off at the end of that because I don't think I have a lot to add to. I think she had a good characterization of that. But I, I do think that, you know, from a pragmatic level, I think it's often, it is sometimes important to set up these spaces you know, if, if this group can do something, what I would like it to do is to give people permission to be creative in what they think of counts as economic history, give them a, a set of people to cite, to say someone else is doing this too. And ultimately, right, to think in, in more creative as a shorthand way of saying it, ways about what sort of stories we can pull out of the archive and also you know, I'll, I'll say this because I have to, you know, make sure that I get it in. In the process, that that notion that when we're pulling a story from the archive and how we are uh, managing our own place in it, right? That is the space for critique. That is the space for understanding the construction of our knowledge. And our work is about critique and the interpretation of these stories, not about finding them and bringing them to light. That's part of it, and it's thrilling but it is also about bringing a critical understanding to how the economy works so that different decisions about our economic futures are possible. And that sounds perhaps high blown for you know, the hopes for an intellectual approach. But I think that that's, that's, that's the work that 
that we do when we navigate between this sort of very close engagement with our subjects and then trying to build you know, a world that doesn't replicate the coerciveness and, and the complicities in which they were sort of, you know, to which they were subject and of which they were sometimes played an active part. Uh, so you know, just emphasizing that notion of critique. And I think several of the people in this group, you know, do that really well and give us really good examples, not only of how we find these new stories, but that those new stories then boomerang back to the old stories, right? And, you know, we start with Julie telling us that, you know, she's going to give us a different story of the beginning of capitalism, essentially. But, uh, you know, even in, in Orsi's work, right, looking at intimacy as a strategy, as something that gets deployed to capture and to, to tame people. She's not on our conversation today, but one of the people in our group, Michelle Chahara, you know, looks at the centrality, essentially, of sex trafficking in contemporary capitalism, not in contemporary Silicon Valley capitalism. You know, not that that's something that just happens, you know, that rich people like Jeffrey Epstein are involved in these networks, but in fact that they are constitutive activities. So it makes it impossible to see the old stories in the same way, I think. Many thanks to Kate Gibson, Julie Hardwick, Orsi Hus, Andrew Pop, Sarah Roddy, and Alexia Yates for taking part in this conversation. More information on their work and a link to the Intimacy and Economic Histories blog can be found on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>